Talofalava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suiswiki. E hariake nei. Overseas voting begins for New Zealand's elections. I look at the latest announcements surrounding welfare. Also, if we can't inspire our young people about, about their culture and their heritage, why would they care? A traditional waka in Wellington is helping Pasifika youth connect with their voyaging history. And later, with Tonga out of the Rugby World Cup, Fiji and Samoa are still on the running. If you've been keeping up with New Zealand's elections, there's been no shortage of policy announcements and promises from party leaders who are on the campaign trail. Earlier this week, the National Party proposed further sanctions for unemployed beneficiaries, whereas the New Zealand First Party wants to impose a two-year limit. Meanwhile, Green Party co-leader Marama Davidson says the policies from both parties are heartless. Joining me on Pacific Waves is social policy analyst from the Salvation Army, Ana Ika. Malo Anna, what was your reaction when you heard National promising sanctions? Yeah, look, um, I think from the Salvation Army's perspective, we're quite disappointed uh, to see um, yeah, these sanctions on uh, beneficiaries because the majority of the whānau that we support um, are beneficiaries or those who access welfare support. Um, I think that the, the biggest challenge is, is looking at those policies and then also seeing if, if there are other alternatives that they were providing around you know, addictions and mental health support. Um, and, and those weren't there, and so that, that's quite discouraging to see that there are sanctions being placed on beneficiaries, and yet, and the other avenues to be able to support them, those haven't been um, offered. Yeah, I mean, Christopher Luxon says this policy is driven out of love and care. I mean, what what interesting choice of words for beneficiaries. I mean, what do you say to that? Yeah, I think um, in regards to nationals, both policies is that. They've taken, they've provided, in their view, as a simple solution to quite a complex issue. Um, I think um, one thing that they, and just listening to, I guess, the narratives that they've been pushing around this policy, um, is that like a lot of the whānau that walk through our doors, um, they come through the doors with quite complex issues. Um, quite um, when we're looking at levels of addiction, when we're looking at mental health challenges, when we're looking at um, just other distresses that they're facing in their life, um, and so just being able to push them out into a job necessarily isn't isn't a solution. Um, and so we don't we in our view this is not a love and care um, this is not a policy driven out of love and care. So it was a policy that was driven out of love and care, then they would have provided alternatives um, as well to be able to provide support for the those on beneficiaries as opposed to just saying you need to get a job, get out. We know that um, you know, policy the nationals policy um talked about um, you know, the, the, the traffic light system and getting people coaches to work alongside them and engaging um community organizations and, and that's quite a good um that's quite a good area but that's just that's just a uh, I guess a, a small a small solution to try and address the big complex issue. So then what impacts will further sanctions or cap on benefits will have when it comes to child poverty, crime and other social issues? Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, the benef- uh, people that are on benefits are, the, you know, the poorest in our country. And um, we, we do see the incentives um, that National um, and New Zealand First are trying to get people to work. Um, but the, the, the challenge is a lot of, um, a, a lot of, when we're looking at those that have been on job seeker for more than a year, those numbers, um, as a as a proportion wise, hasn't changed much in the last ten years. Um, it, it it has increased in regards to looking to raw numbers, 
Um, but then if you're looking at the context of food prices, of housing prices, of petrol prices, um, the, those have that those have increased dramatically, and so it's it's a given that we're going to see increase in the number of people that are on job seeker or trying to get financial support just because it doesn't match the current cost of living. We we think um, that by sanctioning um, beneficiaries, particularly those that are job seekers, um, that if that this removes a problem in this area to try and push people to break, but it it will create. Um, a problem in another area, whether that's through crime, whether that's through, um, you know, seeing um, more children in material hardship. Um, you know, we're thinking about Māori and Pacifica children. Our children are um, in three to four times the level of material hardship as compared to, you know, Asian and European children. And so we think um, these sanctions will perpetuate um, the hardship that those families on being a, on job seeker um, are facing. Do you think then when it comes to elections or even voting, there's a sense of exclusion? I mean, how does policies or politicians inspire confidence in the most vulnerable when, let's be real, all politicians are well paid? Yeah, I think um, I think there's there's an absolute disconnect when we, like just, just, the, just the fact with this policy, if they had sat with those who are on welfare, if they had taken time to sit down with organisations like the Salvation Army, like other community organisations that are working with beneficiaries and actually understand um, the challenges and the issues that they're facing on a day-to-day basis, that means that they aren't able to get into jobs. Um, I think then then we would see a difference in regards to policies um, that are coming out from their parties. But the reality is they're only hearing one part of the story. And so we're getting these policies that actually on the ground makes absolutely no sense for the families that are coming through our doors, um, and also what's challenging is because it's a campaign year, and you know you're 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 wanting um, to put forward policies that that would that most New Zealanders would um, you know would get alongside with. But the, I think the challenges, um, particularly now our work here at Salvation Army, is a lot of the challenges um, and a lot of the the I guess the the funding that walks through our doors, their stories. And, you know, you, you never really hear them uh, in the media. You never really hear them portrayed. Um, and so people don't necessarily understand the complexities. Um, and these complexities are getting worse as the cost of living and housing crisis continues. Any message or advice you want to send to our voters? Yeah, I mean, my, my encouragement to everyone is to get out there and vote and make sure that your voices are heard um, and don't um, think that, you know, one vote, you know, one vote doesn't count. I mean, it absolutely does count, and we live in a democratic society, and so we have, um, we have, it's it's a privilege for us to vote. It's not for many other countries, um, and so just to be able to get out there and vote, particularly for our Pacifica communities, and um, to be able to make sure that their voices are heard by, you know, casting their vote on um, October the fourteenth. There are hopes citizens across the Pacific will soon have better access to official documents. Transparency International says many Pacific countries don't have robust avenues to hold people in power accountable. On World Right to Information Day, Lydia Law spoke with two staunch Pacific advocates for citizens' universal rights to access public information. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Official Information Act allows people to request government documentation. They can be used for fact-checking, investigative journalism, and most importantly, to hold people in power to account. 
Amnesty Papua New Guinea spokesperson Yuambare Highway says significant steps have been taken to establish a framework like this in PNG. He explains why this day is so important. It's a day for advocacy and promotion of the universal right to access, store, disseminate information. It's a key component of freedom of expression and it's really essential for any democratic and open society to function, but it's also useful for commerce and trade, for anti-corruption, good governance, and a whole heap of issues that are close to the heart of people across the world. And so it's, it's a focal point for advocacy, really, on ensuring that countries are able to inform citizens and citizens are able to access uh, public information paid with the public purse. And here in Aotearoa, we have the right as journalists and as citizens to request information under the Official Information Act, anything of the government, whether that be phone call, logs, text logs, documents as well. Can you please tell me about how that differs across the Pacific region and what that looks like in Port Moresby in in Papua New Guinea? Sure. I think uh, New Zealand is one of the leading countries within our region in terms of an access to information regime. And I think they also had to undergo a series of reviews to see how that could be uh, properly done effectively for the people. In the region, we have a number of countries like Australia and Vanuatu um, that have access to information either through a commission um, or through the prime minister's office, as is the case in Vanuatu. So what are they doing about this in PNG? Transparency International PNG um, is co-leading a cluster of commitments within the Open Government Partnership uh, with the Government Department of ICT. Um, so they're the lead on access to information in the country. And we recently had a roundtable dialogue uh, co-convened by the United Nations in Port Moresby uh, with these actors to look at what the next steps for access to information in Papua New Guinea would be. There were two key commitments that came out of that discussion. Uh, One was to look at having a consultation workshop in October uh, with the hope of finalizing a policy on freedom of information in Papua New Guinea uh, by the end of this year. And that would then enable work on legislation, uh, particularly in terms of consulting and drafting, starting in the beginning of 2024. And so we welcome these kind of commitments by governments and we welcome their uh, uh, coordination of both the government priorities and civil society priorities as we work on these key uh, uh, programs such as access to information. How significant is this? It's been significant because of the lack of uh, progress following Papua New Guinea's election. So we had uh, elections in 2022 and we haven't heard any um, further process or engagement on the right to information. And so we used the International Day for Universal Access to Information as an advocacy point to bring those stakeholders together and to get a time, time frame so that the citizens of Papua New Guinea can at least um, have something to track whether meaningful progress is being made in this important area. Um, it, it was crucial for us because um, in the absence of these kind of international days, um, it's difficult to bring focus on these issues domestically. Meanwhile, in Vanuatu, a freedom of information law came into force in 2017. But the executive director of Transparency Vanuatu, Dr. Willy Tokon, told me squabbling politicians are hampering progress. We still have uh, an issue. Uh, firstly, it was the uh, awareness uh, and the uh, advocacy on the RTI Act. But also, most importantly, was the, the absence of the... Uh, Right to Information Commissioner, the officer 
responsible for implementing the uh, RTI uh, Act. In line with that, we've been working for the last three years, we've been working with the RTI office. And especially in the last 12 months, we've done a lot of uh, meetings with uh, stakeholders. And uh, finally, earlier this year, we met with the Minister of uh, Justice, who is responsible for the recruitment of the uh, RTI commissioner. We, uh, we were very lucky to have some funding from uh, SPC. The, there's a program called uh, PIPAC, Pacific People Advancing Change. And so this enabled us to do a lot of printing material for advocacy and awareness on uh, RTI, and also have meetings with the uh, stakeholders responsible for the running of the, uh, our support of the RTI. And we met, we had, uh, finally we came to the stage where we met with the Minister of Justice, who is responsible for the appointment of the, the recruitment of the RTI Commissioner. We had uh, a lunch and learn with him. We pointed out that uh, this position is important and there's a, there's a funding that is available for the appointment. There have been a few changes in government. So have you met in recent weeks? When, which government and which minister? It, it was the Kalsakau government. Okay, so uh, Kalsakau yeah. government has been... What does that mean yes. for this? So right now we, we're still in a, in a crisis in the, in the sense that even though we have Sado Kilman in government now, and his group are in government, they, there's been, uh, they don't have the numbers to, uh, to, uh, to run the government. Uh, so the, uh, the opposition has uh, lost a uh, motion of no confidence. They will, it will be discussed, uh, I think it's just the next week. So that, that is our problem right now. We are, if, as soon as we have uh, stability or we can breathe freely, we will uh, remind the minister responsible and his DG that we need to recruit this. Because if we didn't have this uh, political crisis, August uh, last month, we should have uh, done the advertisement and uh, get all the applications in. And uh, we were looking forward to August, uh, end of August and uh, beginning of September to, uh, to have this appointment done. But this uh, political uh, crisis has really helped, uh, held everything back. The National Library of New Zealand are hoping to connect Pacifica youth to their Polynesian voyaging history with the launch of an interactive education program in Wellington on Wednesday. As part of this, a four-metre-long replica of a traditional double-hulled vaka has been created in partnership with the Victoria University School of Design and Innovation. Tiana Haxton went along to the opening ceremony. Whakaura is the name of the waka. It took 18 months to design and construct based off digital models of Cook Island's waka teo o tonga. The twin hulls were 3D printed with recycled and ocean plastics and for the rest of the construction the team used reclaimed materials to promote an eco-friendly process. The library's senior education specialist, Teriora Crane, says it is an important tool to share the rich indigenous knowledge of our ancestors with the next generation. So there's a whole world of science and engineering which should be an inspirational along with the stories to our young people to say, well, if that's my heritage, if I'm connected to that, 
then what should I do with my life? The vessel has been created as an educational tool to be taken into schools around New Zealand as a part of an immersive package for youth to connect to the moana. That's the privilege that we have of being storytellers and sharing that stuff, is to inspire, to agitate our young people to, to think about, well, if this is in my backdrop, how will I write the next chapter? If we can't inspire our young people about, about their culture and their heritage, why would they care? Why would they, as the future guardians of that knowledge and culture, cultural practices and science, why would they care about taking that forward? This message resonates deeply with one of the students who's been involved in the project over the past 10 months. Lawrence Reed says he dealt with racism growing up, causing him to feel ashamed and disconnected from his Samoan heritage. Yeah, it's really opened my eyes to how, how amazing we are as Pacific people and what we've accomplished. And no one can take that away from us. And so it's almost like our birthright to be proud because these things have already been done and it's up to us to build on that. Being involved in the research, design and creation of Fakauda, Reed discovered great pride for his culture in the stories of Polynesian voyaging. It's really important for the young people to understand who they are and where they came from. For now, I'm really proud of what we've created. Fakauda will be transported to Auckland next week, where school outreach programs will begin. This weekend's Rugby World Cup matches will decide the fates of Pacific teams still in the running for the quarterfinals. Tonga is already out and will be playing for pride, but Fiji and Samoa still have a chance to make it out of their respective pools. RNZ Pacific senior sports journalist Elias Satora is in France and he spoke with Kurui Hawkins. Well, bonjour, Mbulavinaka, Talofalava, Maloelilei from Marseille. Fiji and Samoa are the two best bets for the Pacific teams to get into the quarterfinals. Tonga has already uh, lost out twice and are out of the running, uh, but all Pacific teams are playing this weekend. Fiji must win against Georgia to be able to get into the quarterfinal, and uh, Manu Samoa also needs a win against Japan to keep their hopes alive. Any changes to the lineups ahead of uh, this weekend's games? Manu Samoa have made four changes. Uh, basically just looking at uh, how best they think they can tackle Japan. They're expecting Japan to be very fast, efficient, to be physical, and uh, that's going to, to pose a few uh, issues for Manu Samoa in defense. And um, the changes have been made uh, following reviews of the game uh, last weekend where they were disappointed in losing to Argentina. Tonga and uh, Fiji are also... Um, expected to be making changes in their lineups. They're going to be announcing their teams on Friday and Saturday here in France. Now, a lot of people already singing Fiji's praises to get through to the, the next round, but Georgia is not a pushover, is it? Yes, Georgia is, um, has, has proven a few uh, times against Fiji that they are no pushover. They will not be. They have uh, performed uh, well uh, in, in the tournament so far. Uh, you know, in, uh, according to uh, the standards that they've brought in, they they will not be uh, an easy team for Fiji. Fiji has to be up up to, uh, to their game, and uh, Coach Simon Rewalui basically has that message across the Fiji team camp, and uh, the focus is on winning against Georgia. But yes, definitely Georgia will be a a good battle for Fiji. 
looking at the wider competition, any any team standing out for you? Um, uh, who's already qualified for quarters? And and I know there's been a uh, slow start for a few teams like the All Blacks. How are they looking now? Uh, Wales has become the first team to to qualify for the quarterfinals from Pool C after uh, their wins against Fiji and um, you know and and Australia. Ireland uh, uh, put up a strong performance again against uh, the Springboks last week. Uh, and of course, they uh, are top seed to get into uh, the quarterfinals. So the way it looks, Ireland and um, and South Africa will qualify from uh, their end. Uh, holds France and the All Blacks uh, should go in. They have a, 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 a clash against Italy this weekend. So it looks like the top four are going to be battling it out in the in the quarterfinals to get into the semifinals. And uh, the bottom end of the draw, uh, Fiji, you know, Argentina, Manu Samoa, uh, England, they are all in the running uh, to get into the quarterfinals as well. You've been to a few matches now, a few stadiums, different cities. Um, have you met a lot of Pacific fans? Uh, how are the locals um, taking to the tournament as well? Uh, definitely, definitely uh, a lot of uh, Pacific uh, contingent uh, here uh, in France. Uh, they've come from Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, New Zealand, Australia, uh, the United States, and across Europe. And, um, you know, just... just uh, the talk of the town or the talk of the, the tournament so far has been the support from the local French fans uh, on Pacific teams. Uh, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga are getting a lot of local support and, you know, they're they are singing, they're cheering for the teams at, at the different stadiums they've played in, uh, which basically just shows that uh, there's a lot of love for Pacific rugby here in Europe, especially here in France, where a lot of the players are actually playing uh, club rugby. Thank you so much, Elisa, uh, for your time. That's Pacific Ways for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, to Fasoi 4.